Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to today's episode of Reimagining Love. I am joined by a wonderful guest, Lori Gottlieb. Lori is a psychotherapist and a New York Times bestselling author. Her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, has sold well over a million copies and is currently being adapted as a television series. As you're going to hear in this episode, it is really one of my favorite books. In addition to her clinical practice, Lori is the co-host of the popular Dear Therapists podcast, which is produced by Katie Couric, and she writes The Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column. Lori and I have known each other for a few years now, and I am really excited to have her on the show. I just know that you're going to love this conversation. Lori is so sharp and so thoughtful that I had to bring two meaty listener questions to talk with her about. Tuck in and enjoy Lori and this episode. Hi, Lori. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Likewise. So you and I first met back in 2018 when you were on your book tour for your incredible book, maybe you should talk to someone. And I got to host you uh, in Chicago, interview you for an event. And it meant that I got an early copy of your book and I just devoured it as so many people around the world have. And I love that you and I have kept in touch. I love when our paths cross. And I'm just so grateful for you being the superstar that you are, the invaluable resource that you are, and the hard worker you are. So thank you for just you, first of all. Oh, well, that's so nice to hear. Thank you. I feel the same way about you, which is why I think we've connected and stayed in touch all this time. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So on Reimagining Love, I like to start with my guest experts with this relational self-awareness question that reminds me and reminds us that we get to be whole as we are and forever works in progress. So what is a growing edge that you're working on in one of your important relationships these days? And what has it been teaching you? I would say the growing edge in an important relationship right now is letting go with my son, who is a teenager. I think that as a parent, we go through this process of letting go in increments, but I think it really, really accelerates as they get to this point where they're about to leave the nest. Mm -hmm. And I think it applies really to any relationship is how do we separate our own experience from another person's experience, whether that's a partner or a parent or a child or a friend or a sibling. I think it's so easy to see and so hard to practice. 
I mean, that lands so deeply for me. You know, we've got kids around the same age and there are times when I really do think that I'm grounded in my own experience and I'm keeping it separate from one of my kids' experiences. And then they, <laughs> they let me know that no, that my reactions are muddying the water and that it's not as clear and clean to them as it feels to me. And thank goodness, right? Thank goodness our kids can let us know that. It's hard to see and it's impossible to prevent. And I see this so much when I see couples too. It's the same thing, even though I'm talking mm. about a parenting experience. You know, it's really hard for people to see that the other person is having a different experience of the same event. Mm -hmm. And they try to convince the other person to see the event through their perspective yeah. instead of being open to, wait a minute, let me try to understand it through your perspective as well as mine. Mm -hmm. That there can be two different perspectives, that there can be two different experiences of the exact same thing. Well, which P.S. is exactly, th that was the heartbeat of your beautiful TED Talk. You gave such a bold, clear example of something that we experience, as you're saying, again and again and again in all of our relationships. And I know for me, one of the things, especially with kids, but likely with my, in my marriage also, when I'm feeling anxious, when something feels urgent, right? That's when it's that much harder because it is an actual skill set to decenter our own perspective and anxiety and that sense of urgency really keeps us from being able to do the work of seeing it from somebody else's perspective. Yeah. And anxiety is also so contagious. I always say in a household, mm -hmm. anxiety spreads like wildfire. One person is anxious and it's very hard for other people in the household not to become anxious. And again, going back to couples, we see that all the time where one person is anxious and the other person reacts to that anxiety and then both people get lost. Right. And the couple's therapist can get lost in yes. thinking about when I'm, you know, when, <laughs> when I'm sitting with the couple, right? It really does. Yes, it spreads like wildfire. When it comes to our teens, right, we know that a big part of the last few years has been an epidemic of mental health challenges for our teens so that parents come by their anxiety very, very honestly and very understandably. And it is our job as parents you know, to just work on our own anxiety because, as you said, it spreads like wildfire, it really does. And I think the other thing is that we can be so uncomfortable with their discomfort. So instead of being able to just be present for them, to just be able to mm -hmm. sit with them, to just be able to say, I am here as you grapple with this and I'm available in any way you need me and let them come to you, we have so much discomfort around their discomfort that we try to fix it, solve it, um, make it better, take away the feelings from them. And that is not helping them to move into adulthood and to be able to know that feelings are like weather systems. They blow in, they blow out, and that you don't have to get rid of a feeling that is uncomfortable. You can sit through it and get to the other side. Mm. If we want to teach them anything before we let go, it's that. We want them to go out into the world knowing that I am able to manage my feelings. I'm able to sit with them. I don't have positive feelings or negative feelings. I just have feelings and they're all information. They're like a compass. They tell us what we want, what we need. If I'm feeling sad, what does that mean? If I'm feeling anxious, what's going on? If I'm feeling angry, do I not have enough boundaries up? You know, if I'm feeling envy, does that tell me something about my desire and something that I actually want? Mm -hmm. So if we actually listen to the feelings they're so valuable and they give us so much information. And if we as parents don't give our children the opportunity to sit with those feelings and hear the message that the feelings are giving them, we're not teaching them something that is essential for their emotional well-being as they grow up. Beautiful. You know, the connection I'm making right now, because I'm in the middle of teaching my undergraduate class, is students asking questions about where's my responsibility to my romantic partner around their mental health challenges? And when do I get to say your challenge is too much for me because I have my own challenges? And so that's another piece of it for parents is that we really want to hold space for our kids and our teens to be able to handle their own emotions because if and as they go off to college, leave the nest, they need those self-management skills because otherwise they're going to be enlisting their romantic partner to be that soothing person 
um, because they just haven't had a chance to learn that skill. So there is that like really clear transition that if kids have not had a chance to practice that at home, they're going to leave the house and kind of move into intimate relationships where they are kind of asking their partner you know, I mean, certainly the interdependence and the co-regulation continues in romantic relationships, and we have got to have abilities to soothe ourselves. Yes, otherwise they're going to overwhelm their partners. It's not going to feel like a, a reciprocal relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm here with you, I, my team and I have chosen two listener questions we want to talk to you about. But before we do that, I really do want to spend a bit of time talking about uh, maybe you should talk to someone, your book from a few years ago. It is this brilliant memoir that we use together, your journey, the journeys of some of your clients, and just a ton of wisdom and information from the fields of psychology and psychotherapy. It is just beautiful. How do you understand the incredible success of the book? Like, what did it, what do you feel like it has touched in the collective that just has made it so treasured and so? Um, well responded to. Well, it's really interesting because to me, the book is really a book about the human condition. It's about how we grow in connection with others. It's about relationship. Originally, I was supposed to be writing a book about happiness and the happiness book, as I write (laughs) in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, was making me miserable. It was actually making me depressed. And that was because it did not reflect all of the nuance and beauty that I see every day in the therapy room that not many people get to see. I think we, as people who see clients, we we get a window into the human condition that other people don't in the same way. When I canceled the happiness book and I said, I just want to bring people into the therapy room because I think that we can see ourselves reflected in every single person that I have seen Mm -hmm. as a therapist. People said, oh, no, 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 no one's going to want to read that. And so I was like, fine, if three people are going to read this, I'm still going to write this book. Because for the three people who read it, I think they'll get something really valuable from it. And so in the book, I follow the lives of four very different patients who are all struggling in relationships in different ways. And then there's a fifth patient in the book. And that fifth patient is me as I go through my own struggle in a relationship. And I go to see a therapist who I call Wendell in the book. And so you really see these struggles from both sides of, you know, therapist and client. And when I turned in the book, It was so raw. It was so open because, I again, I thought no one's going to read this so I can just be as open as I want and write the book I I feel will be most valuable. Then, you know, the response to it was really amazing. People were like, I laughed, I cried, I gave it to this person and that person. I saw myself and everybody. And then I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, maybe I should clean myself up a little bit because maybe like, you know, 3,000 people will read it. And now, (laughs) (laughs) or three million. Well, well now, you know, we're way over a million copies sold and probably closer to two or three or whatever we are at this point. And it's funny because I think that is the reason that I was so authentic in the book, that I didn't hide what I was going through. And it was so universal. And I think often we feel so alone in whatever we're struggling with. We think we're the only one going through this. We're the only one who has this particular situation. And I think what we find is that we are all more the same than we are different. I I open the book by saying that my greatest credential as a therapist is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that I know what it's like to struggle and be a person in the world. So I think that's why it has really resonated so strongly with people is because these are real people and real stories and we can see ourselves mirrored in every single one of them. 100%. I agree with all of that. It is just so unique in that it reads like fiction. Like you really do feel like you're reading fiction and you are educating and empathizing with us every single step of the way. It's just so, it's just, I know that Irving Yalom has been a huge influence and mentor to you and it sort of is in that like lineage and so you and so modern and so contemporary and so deeply relational. It's just, yeah, I mean, we could spend the rest of the rest of the show on that book. It's just one of my favorite books. In fact, one of the girls, my daughter's got some girlfriends over and one of the girlfriends read your book last summer and she's, you know, she was 15 or 16 at the time and maybe doesn't want to become a therapist, but really loves amazing writing and she loved it. So it is it's universal in that way. I'm sure you hear, I know that you have been so nourished by stories over the, over these years about who it has, whose lives it has touched from 
all parts of the world and all ages. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see it all over the world. So it just shows again the the universality of it. It's mm-hmm. in you know mm-hmm. dozens and dozens of other languages and countries and places you would never expect because it's really not a book about therapy as much as it is a book about our lives and what it means to to live a, a meaningful life and what it means to relate and what gets us stuck and how we self-sabotage and how we don't know how to relate when we really want to relate and how do we love and be loved. And I think that's right. the ultimate question that the book asks is, how can I love and be loved? That's right. Yeah. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. You know, on the topic of therapy, I was thinking about also wanting to talk this piece through with you. You know, the pandemic has really ushered in a mental health crisis. Books like yours have been one of the wonderful tools towards helping reduce stigma around therapy. And so there's lots and lots of people now looking for therapy, starting therapy, which for those of us who are practicing therapy know that it is just, it's challenging to find referrals and all of our colleagues are, you know, quite busy these days. But it means that um, a lot of folks are asking me questions about, you know, okay, so I've found a therapist, but how do I know it's the right therapist? Well, I think that a lot of people don't understand how important that relationship is. So it's not like if you, you know, you go to a cardiologist and they'll pretty much do the same kind of thing with you and they'll do the EKG. And, you know, it's like, it's a very standardized kind of thing. And yes, you want to like your cardiologist, but it's not the same as the relationship you have with someone where you're coming in every week and you're really going to these places that feel very tender, very vulnerable. In fact, study after study shows that the relationship you have with your therapist is more important to the quote-unquote success of your therapy than the number of years of training they have, the modality they use. All those things are important, but not as important. So what I want people to understand about finding a therapist is that your first session is a consultation. It's an opportunity for you to sit down with somebody and just see what the experience is like to sit in a room with that particular person and just check in with yourself. And if after that session, you feel like, did I feel like this person was easy to talk to? And did this person say something or ask something that made me for a second consider a different perspective? Oh, I love that. And we don't do Mm -hmm. too much of that in a first session because we're really just trying to get to know someone and we don't want to challenge somebody in a first session because they're not, you know, timing and dosage, I think, are very important in forming that relationship. But I do think that I will always, in a first session, want to maybe ask a question in a very, very gentle way, just to kind of plant a seed. Mm -hmm. And if someone is planting a seed, like, oh, maybe there's another version to this story, or maybe there's another aspect to this, or maybe there's something about my role in what's troubling me that I might learn about if I continue to come in and talk to this person. I think that's Mm -hmm. a really good sign. And then Mm -hmm. you go back for a second session. You're not in therapy with this person yet. So go back and see how it feels then. And after several sessions, you'll have a much better idea of is this the right person for me or do I want to explore something else? And another thing is you can bring up with your therapist, the beauty of therapy yes, is that this is where you say the things that you would maybe feel hesitant to say out in the world. Yeah. So you can say, hey, you know, I've been here for five sessions and I don't know what it is, but I'm not sure that this is the right fit and I don't know what it's about. And I wonder if we can talk about that. Oh, 
Love it. And those conversations, whether it is the right fit or not the right fit, are so valuable because first of all, it teaches you how to bring up something really difficult in a relationship. How do mm-hmm. I say the hard thing in a relationship that feels really uncomfortable? How do I share my truth without worrying so much about how it's going to land on the other person? Being considerate, but also knowing that it's more important that I share my truth. That's right. And that every therapist who is worth the fee that they're charging knows how to handle that feedback. And in fact, even if it makes the therapists, you know, heart race a little bit because therapists want to be pleasing and therapists want to do a good job by the clients they are serving, that therapist ought to, we want that therapist to be able to sit in that like meta conversation, the conversation about the relationship, because it may very well be that the therapist, you know, has got sort of a blind spot or there's something that the therapist is missing. And it may very well be that the client is bumping up against a similar relational dance or dynamic that they bump up against in other relationships. And then therapy becomes a space to work on a dynamic, as you're saying, that is transcendent, that is going to generalize to other relationships, but you can't even get to that until and unless you as a client do the brave, scary, hard thing of saying to your therapist, like something doesn't feel right. Or when you said this last week, my feelings were hurt or I didn't, sometimes I'm confused by what you're saying and I'm not sure how to let you know when I'm feeling confused. Any and all of that feedback is essential and can take the relationship to a deeper level. Right. Or even just, I'm not feeling what I think I should be feeling. I'm not really feeling Uh, connected in here. And Mm -hmm. I don't know why. And to explore that, and maybe that Mm -hmm. is something, you know, we always say therapy is like a microcosm of how you relate out in the world. Whatever you do out in the world, you will bring into your therapy relationship. But it could also not be the right fit. Either way, you will discover something about yourself and you will grow just from having brought that up. So I really want people to know that make sure that you're really talking about the things you need to be talking about. It's your space and I want people to make good use of it. Yes. Good. That's great. Okay, my dear, let us um, tackle our first listener question. So this, you know, a large spreadsheet of questions that we're collecting from all over the world. My team and I chose two to talk about with you and they both happen to be from listeners in Australia. So let's unpack the first listener question. And this is a listener from Brisbane who uses she, her pronouns. And she writes, my husband and I are working on rebuilding our relationship after betrayal through therapy and better communication. And she says the Reimagining Love podcast has been a godsend for me through this time. And she says, I have the support of my two closest friends in this process, but I haven't been through anything similar before. And my friends are struggling with the process of supporting me. They're doing a great job, but I know their anger and fear for me after being hurt by my partner is tough for them to witness. And they're worried that by working through the relationship, I'll be hurt again. I have the same fear, so I can't blame them. Firstly, what do you think the role of a supportive friend is during marriage rebuilding? And what can I do to support my friends in rebuilding their relationship with my partner when they know the details around how he has hurt me? My husband and I have been together five years and my friends previously had a good relationship with him before the betrayal. That's such a great question because that's so common. It's like you're hurt, you're betrayed, you tell your friend, you don't know what's going to happen. And then you can't take that back. You can't unsay what you've said. And so they have this knowledge, but what they don't have is they're not in that relationship. They don't have all the complexity and all the nuances and all the reasons that these people want to be together and want to rebuild this relationship. When she says, you know, what is the role of my friends? Mm -hmm. Again, going back to presence, I think that Mm. what can help so much is be there for your friend. They should be there for her. But that doesn't mean that they should share all of their anxieties and fears and opinions because That is a place they have never been. They have never been in that marriage, in that situation. Even if they have been betrayed in their own relationships, it is a completely different situation. Mm -hmm. So their opinions about this should not really be welcome. Unless she's seeking them, but I don't see how that would even help her. She's working on this in therapy. She's working on it with her husband. Those are the people involved. And I would say also, one way to think about this or to help her friends think about this is that when there's a, an infidelity, it seems like the biggest thing that can happen that is just like unacceptable, right? 
But mm-hmm. think about all the times in her friends' relationships when maybe their partner yelled at them or said the most cutting, cruel thing. Lots of things happen in relationships that we don't always report. Imagine if every time our partner did something that really, really hurt us, which happens in every relationship, that we reported that to our friends. The one we report tends to be infidelity. Yeah. But we don't report all those other injuries, those other betrayals, which are betrayals, just of a different kind. So imagine what would happen if, you know, if she could help her friends imagine if you told me everything that your partner ever did, and then her friends will come back and say, oh, but it wasn't as bad as cheating, right? Right. But why? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. like when you hurt your partner, you hurt your partner. And so we have this hierarchy of betrayal. Mm -hmm. And I just think we need to get rid of that hierarchy and say, we are going through something in our marriage. There's been a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. We are trying to rebuild. And what I need from you is I need your support as I'm trying to rebuild. I need you to be present for me, to listen to me, to let me talk about what I need to talk about. And to support the choices that I'm making because they feel really good to me, even if I'm scared, even if I don't trust yet, even if I'm not sure, I will Mm. get to the place I need to be, whether we end up staying together or not. But it's my process, and I just need you to support my process. I love the language that you are offering because it is empowered and kind. Mm -hmm. And it's really clear that these are important friends to our listener and she's grateful for their support. And what you're challenging her to do or inviting her to do is kind of have a conversation about the relationship in which she can lead with vulnerability, right? Like I've not done this before. I've not ever recovered from infidelity before. So I'm a first timer here. Our friend group, you know, might be our first time going through it. And here's what I'm noticing. And here's how I feel when you all say these things or do these things. And here's what I would like. And exactly what you're saying, I think we really do underestimate the power of presence, that oftentimes we think that to be a friend is to advise or to direct or to save or to rescue. And that really what we want these friends to remember is it is such a gift to just kind of hold that space. For her. It reminds me a lot of what I wrote about in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Yes, I was hoping you'd bring this up. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. When our friends come to us so often with things, I'm not talking about betrayal necessarily, I'm just saying they'll say like, listen to what my partner, my mom, my boss, my sibling, whatever did. And we're like, yeah, you're right. They're wrong. That's terrible. You deserve better. You go, girl. Mm-hmm. If you listen to your friends over time, sometimes they tell the same kinds of stories. It's almost like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. Now, that doesn't (laughs) sound like what's going on here. No, but I really think that that comparison between idiot compassion and wise compassion is apt here because the idiot compassion is just we support our friends. We care about them. We don't want to see them hurt. And so we just blindly take their side and vilify the other person, whoever hurt our friend, whoever dared to do that. We hate them now. They're awful. Mm -hmm. And and my friend is always right. In therapy, you get wise compassion. Wise compassion, as opposed to idiot compassion. In wise compassion, we hold up a mirror to you and we help you to see something about yourself and your situation that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see. We look at the nuances. And in this case, her, her partner is not all good or all bad. He did something that was extremely painful. That was, you know, catastrophic in a way. But that doesn't make him a bad person. There, Look at what he's doing that make him a good person or what he's doing that's good. He's saying, I want to try to figure this out with you. I am trying to repair the trust with you. I'm going to therapy with you. I want to figure this out. We know that is happening at the same time. We don't know all the details, but we do know that he's doing certain things to try to repair this. So people are not all good or all bad. They do certain things. They do other things. And I think that the wise compassion aspect of this, which is what they're doing in therapy, is let's get everything on the table. Let's look at the good, the bad, the ugly, and let's figure out what's here, what can be salvaged, what you both want to be salvaged, what you Mm -hmm. don't want. That's the process. I think it may be a chance for this friend group 
to make kind of collective agreements around wise compassion. And they then are able to make agreements among each other that, listen, let's try to figure out what wise compassion would look like within our circle, because this may be the first crisis we've dealt with, but, you know, life does what life does. And we may have other crises. And how can we show up for each other with patience? What I also would wonder is, can the women in this group of friends also talk about, listen, it's really hard to be patient with your story of infidelity because what it activates in me is guilt over the time that I was the affair partner or painful memories about my parents' infidelity or fear, deep, deep fear that I don't know how I would survive what you are surviving. Like, can the friendship go to that level where each person's experience becomes a chance to witness each other and to say what your journey brings up in me is X, Y, and Z. And that's just like such deep humanity. Right. I was just going to say that so many times when people refuse to see the goodness of the partner who betrayed their friend, Mm -hmm. it's because it activated something in them. Mm -hmm. That it becomes so separate from what's actually happening with their friend and their partner. It becomes about, if my partner ever did that to me, I can't imagine. So I need to punish your partner for doing this. Yeah. Because that sends a strong signal that that is not okay. It reassures me, it calms me, but it doesn't actually help you, my friend. Yep. And so I think exactly what you said, that having those conversations, what does it activate in each of the friends in this group will bring them so much closer and allow them to support one another in all kinds of ways throughout the, the duration of their, of their long friendship. Yep, that's right. It also just strategically, you know, the more the friends kind of get polarized around he's terrible, she may feel like she has to advocate for him to kind of balance things out, which I'm sure creates a conflict. Like, here I am standing up for this guy who just hurt me. So it just puts her in this complicated, you know, this happens in therapy all the time. When one person takes up one side of the pole, it just creates, you know, Newton's third law of physics. Like it just leads to the kind of equal opposite kind of a reaction. So then she may be saying things in defense of her husband that actually don't reflect where she is in her healing journey, but she just feels like she has to back him up because they're, you know, being so harsh. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What do we want to say about what can I do to support my friends in rebuilding their relationship with my partner? What do you think about that part of it? This kind of triangle, you know, the listener, her friends and the husband. Yeah. I think she's got so much on her plate right now. (laughs) Yeah. I think that she needs to have a conversation with her friends about, I am working so hard right now on my relationship with my partner. And here's what I need from you. You will come to whatever conclusion you come to, but know that if you trust me as a person, that I am making choices that make sense for me. You don't know all the details. And that everything that you liked about him, those are all still true. Nothing has changed about that. There is this thing that happened and all those other things are still true. And you're going to have to come to your own peace with that for my sake. Yeah. And I want to say something about listening, which is, I don't think that we know how to listen well. We didn't learn that growing up, most of us. So when someone comes to us with something, one of two things will happen, either we get really uncomfortable and we try to make them feel better and just, again, blindly support them. Or we try to comfort them in the way that we would want to be comforted in that situation without even considering what do they need from me in this moment? Hmm. Because they might want something different. So when your friend comes to you with something, it helps so much to be able to say to them, I'm here and how can I be helpful to you in this conversation? Because someone might say, you know what? I just want a hug right now. That's all they want. They don't want all your chatter. They don't want all your opinions. They don't want you to like distract them from their feelings and say, hey, let's go take a walk. Maybe they don't want that right now. Maybe they just want a hug. Or maybe they can say, their answer might be, I just want to vent right now. I'm just going to say a whole bunch of stuff and I just need you to be here and listen. (laughs) That's all. I just need to say it out loud and have the space and then I will calm down. Or it might be, hey, I'm really grappling with this and I'm just, I would love to hear your thoughts about this. Or I'd love to help you sort through my thoughts about this. You don't know what they need until you ask. And remember, it's not one conversation. So 
Two days later, they might come back and say, you know how I just wanted a hug the other day? Well, today, <laughs> what I really want yeah. is I want to run this by you and I want to hear how you feel about this or, you know, help me to think about how I can think about this differently. Whatever it is, yeah. everybody has a different thing. You see this in couples all the time where someone comes to their partner and they're like, I'm really anxious about this thing. And the partner does what they would want in that situation or they do the thing to just get their partner to calm down without thinking about, what are they asking of me right now? How can I be here mm -hmm. for you right now in the way that you need me to be here? Mm -hmm. You say that at the top of the conversation. That's right. I just heard uh, a woman told me last week that in couples therapy, the husband learned this question of, you know, what does support look like right now? And he has really overgeneralized this. So now every time there's something, he just says, what does support look like right now? And she's like, even though I know darn well where he learned this, she's like, it works every time. Like, I don't mind that he, you know, she's like, she watches him kind of tense up and then ask the question, but he has a go-to tool that he will use in all the situations. And she appreciates the effort. And just as you're saying, what support looks like on a Tuesday might be different on a Friday. Yeah. yeah. I really hear what you're saying about, I felt the same way too, in terms of, I feel protective of how much she has on her plate right now. So for her to be kind of worried about the relationship between the friends and the husband feels like a lot. I wonder if part of what the husband's journey towards accountability, sort of holding himself to account and holding himself in warm regard, he may want to meet up with the friends and say, listen, you are my wife's people. I know what you mean to her. I know what you mean to me. I can understand and imagine how this felt to you. I'm available to process it with you. You know, like if there's a way in which she could just kind of pull herself out of the triangle and just invite him to figure out ways in which, you know, sort of a way we do when someone's in a recovery process from addiction, right? There's that accountability and restoration and witnessing of all of the different facets of harm. So I wonder if that might be a part of his accountability journey and, and if that might feel to our listener like he really has her back by acknowledging what happened to the friends. I love that. I love that it takes her out of it. And mm -hmm. I also love that it provides that accountability for him. I would really want the friends to not then kind of beat him up. Yes, because because right. I can imagine right. a scenario where he does this and he has the accountability and he has his partner's back and they just are relentless. It could go different ways. I love the idea of it. And I think it could be beautiful and healing for everybody. I think the friends have to be ready to be open enough to this repair. Yes, that's right. That's what I would want for him is for them to meet him in a space of deep humanity mm -hmm. and to do that, right? To be able to witness somebody stepping into accountability, like that grows the friends, right? The friends would potentially come away from that experience of like, oh, damn, it's so hard to hold on to anger and empathy. It's so hard to hold those, all those dialectics that would be evoked, but it would grow each and every one of them yeah. if they were able to do it. Yeah, yeah I yeah. love that idea. All right, well, let us move on to Melbourne. Now we shall travel over to Melbourne and answer this one. I have had a huge crush on my colleague for two years. He seems to be everything I look for in a partner. He's caring, reliable, funny, smart, and holds space for my emotions. He is also a great mentor at work and helped me out on numerous occasions. The more I interact with him, the more I am attracted to him, but he has a stable partner. I've been in this loop of wanting to move on, but not being able to for so long. What can I do to help myself move on? Constant crying feels draining. I'm in my late 20s. I've never been in a relationship before. Sometimes I fear that I will never have a great intimate relationship. This sounds irrational on screen, but it holds so true for my brain. Well, I have so much compassion for her because I know we all know what that feels like when you feel like, I really, really connect with this person. This person connects with me and sort of the, you know, the internal torture of not being able to be with them. I think what stood out for me was she said, I've never been in a relationship before. And I think it's really easy to imagine that someone who is not available is the perfect person for you because it's safe. It's so mm -hmm. incredibly safe to say that would be my person because you're not going to be vulnerable with them. It's easy to be, to feel like you're vulnerable with them because you're not in that relationship with them. But if this person were available, I wonder 
if she would feel the same way. Because she's in her late 20s and she's never had a relationship. So I would get really curious about what's going on there. Why has she never been able to connect with someone who is available until this point in her life? And then there's this person that she can't be with. I think there's some avoidance, some fear around intimacy there. You're naming that in a really gentle, compassionate way, but that's really worth her exploration. Sometimes when, you know, when somebody is moving into their later 20s, having not had relationship experience, it takes on a life of itself. It's like the longer I've gone without being in an intimate relationship, the easier it is for that story to set in of what's wrong with me and it won't happen. And so it can sort of end up folding in on itself. And then I imagine, or I worry, get perpetuated then by pursuing somebody who's not available. And I, you know, you're validating just the difficulty of the situation. And there is a way that connection plus obstacle just spikes attraction, right? Like there's just something, it's just (laughs) fire, fire, right? There's something just organic about like, it's happening because of whatever the neurophysiology of that dynamic is of like, I can't have you. Well, damn, you would have just gotten 10 times more attractive and 10 times more charming. So there is that idea of the obstacle, the impediment that just does spike. And the other thing is it can seem very confusing to her because a lot of people think that just because you share a lot of personal details about your life or you have these discussions, that that's intimacy. But that's not necessarily intimacy. Whatever connection she feels with him, it would feel very different if this other partner were not involved in his life. I mean, I I can just imagine all of the big feelings that would be coming up and it would not feel so good and so safe and so soothing. Mm -hmm. It would feel Mm -hmm. probably terrifying to her. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. let's not mistake the fact that they talk a lot about things with real intimacy. Real intimacy is when there are no obstacles, what does that feel like? Hmm. Yep, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it quite like that, but I think that there's a lot of merit to that. You're not saying the relationship isn't genuine. Like she's naming things, you know, she appreciates the mentoring and the connection. As you said, it's not intimacy because it is built on unavailability. And, you know, she may, she's talking about crying and these big emotions that she's riding, these waves of emotions. I wonder, this would probably be like a little bitty, tool in a big old storm. But I wonder if there's a way that with her rational mind, she could say to herself, listen, here's also why it wouldn't work. Because even if he left his stable partner for me, now what am I going to do with the fact that this man I admire and appreciate has just ended a relationship or has started an affair with me? So there's a way that she can kind of like, perhaps in a moment, think her way into I just can't play out any scenario right now that makes any kind of sense and just come back to it's not possible right now. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you brought up the crying because I think the crying and the, the kind of obsession, it just feels very obsessive, that it's a distraction. It's a great distraction because it takes up all the emotional real estate in her mind and in her heart. Hmm. And so she can't be available for anyone else because she's fixated yeah. on this guy. And Mm -hmm. I think that she is using him almost like a drug. You know, I am going to distract myself with this guy and think about him 24-7 and cry because I don't have him. And, And when I hear crying too, I think about grief. And I think that there's the loss of the fantasy of having this guy that she is crying about. But I think there's probably some other grief and some other loss there too that he is Mm -hmm. standing in for. And he's just a concrete thing right in front of her that she can say, I'm crying about that. But often the thing that we think we're crying about is sort of the top layer. And there's probably so much loss and grief underneath that. And I think too, there's a little bit of repetition compulsion possibly going on here. I write about that and maybe she talked to someone. There's this young woman, Charlotte, who keeps dating unavailable men. And she can't understand why, you know, this keeps happening to her. And I think that what we do unconsciously is so many times if we haven't worked through something difficult from our past, we repeat it, but we don't know we're repeating it. So what happens is, you know, we see someone, we're so attracted to them, like she's so attracted to this coworker. And 
it's our unconscious, you know, consciously we say, oh, wow, I'm attracted to all the things she wrote in her letter. You know, he's smart, he's funny, he's emotionally available, whatever. But really it's your unconscious going, you look familiar, come closer. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I recognize you. And what she might recognize in him is I know what it's like to not have my love reciprocated. I know what it's like to really want that love, but I can't have it. And maybe she had a parent who didn't love her in the way she wanted to be loved, or, you know, she just couldn't have it. The reason we do that, and that's where the repetition compulsion comes in, is because we think unconsciously, again, it's completely outside of our awareness. We think maybe this time I'll win. Yes. Maybe this time I will master that pain from childhood, except the ending will be different because now I'm an adult and now I'm going to get this person to love me. But it doesn't work out that way. So when you process those painful feelings or the loss or the grief or whatever, we look for a person who will hurt us in exactly the same way that someone from the past has hurt us. And we don't know we're doing that. But once you process that hurt from the past, you stop looking for the person who's going to hurt you in exactly the same way. Now, this guy doesn't seem to be consciously trying to hurt her, but she chose him because he is hurting her because he's by virtue of not being available. Well, and perhaps then the story of I can't have him prove some core story that is I'm not worthy Mm -hmm. of love. And that as that heals, I mean, I suspect that the things that she admires in him or the things that he sees in her are parts that live within her. And we want her to move towards a partner who can look at her and see all of those qualities and be available to celebrate and connect with her while witnessing those qualities. And then her challenge will become letting herself receive. Yes. And that's going to be a beautiful challenge for her to allow herself to be liked and admired and sought after by somebody who is available. And that will, she will hit, I suspect, an edge there that she has yet to visit. And then she will need to be breathing and like keeping herself open and allowing herself to receive that somebody I admire is admiring me. Somebody I like is liking me. And that will be a beautiful challenge for her. Yeah, because that that sounds like it's a very unfamiliar experience for her. She's Mm -hmm. never experienced that before. And so I think people need to remember that when they go into an experience that they've never had before, it's going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And some people misinterpret that discomfort as, oh, I'm not really interested in that person, or this isn't the right relationship, as opposed to, oh, wait, why am I feeling this discomfort that this person that I was so interested in is reciprocating that? And all of a sudden, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. What's that Mm -hmm. about? Mm -hmm. So I think she's going to learn a lot about herself when, as you said, she starts to get into relationship with someone where she is able to receive and to feel what that's like. And to be able to understand, you know, where the blocks are for her around receiving. Well, and even though the stuff we've been saying about repetition compulsion, about the role of the past, even though that's highly confronting, I imagine, right? It's not comfortable to think about our actions and our feelings being driven by, you know, things outside of our conscious awareness. There is a kind of liberation because it means that it's not this man on this pedestal, that this is the ultimate man And if I can't have him, then everybody else is going to pale in comparison, right? So by understanding that her attraction is fueled at least in part by historic stuff, by forces outside of her awareness, she can, you know, take him off the pedestal and put him back in the realm of the human so that then a future potential partner isn't, there's not going to be this comparison of like, but you're not him, but you're not him, but you're not him. This process of realizing that it's actually her stuff that's shaping it will hopefully liberate her. That it's not that he was this perfect man and nobody else is ever going to measure up. Right. And the fact that she will never have him runs the risk of her always comparing to him because she'll never know what it would have been like to be in a relationship with this mere mortal that she has put up on this pedestal. And so that's going to be part of her work too, is to make sure that she doesn't compare the people who are available to her with this fantasy that she never experienced. Because it's just that, it's just a fantasy. Yeah, he gets to remain easily idealizable. We're not saying that she's making up these characteristics. It sounds like he is, the experiences she has with him as a mentor, as a colleague. And all of that is available to her. She can still continue to be 
his colleague or his uh, employee, whatever the relationship is, like all of that remains available to her. She still gets those benefits of the connection and she gets to then take back her power and her agency to pursue partnership that's available. Yeah, I, I agree that all those qualities are there, but I also feel like he's a big distraction from mm-hmm. her really having to look at why has it been so difficult for me to find a relationship that I want to be in? That's what we want her to work on. Thank you to both those listeners in Australia who sent us such rich, thoughtful questions that I suspect are going to land for lots and lots of of people. And Lori, thank you. Where do you want people to go to find out more about what you're working on now? Like, what are what's the what are the best ways to follow along with you and be near you? Um, well, first of all, just thank you for this conversation. I love your podcast. And I, mm-hmm. I think that all of the questions that come up are so universal, even though, you know, they seem specific, but they're not. They can find me. They can read. Maybe you should talk to someone. I have a new workbook out. It's called the Maybe You Should Talk to Someone workbook. And it is offering what I do in the therapy room with people to help them rewrite their stories, kind of edit these faulty narratives, understand more about how they're getting in their own ways, and really being able to liberate themselves from some of these traps that they've been carrying around with them. I have a podcast called Dear Therapists, where we do actual sessions with people, and then we give them homework that they have a week to complete, and we hear how they did. Um, (laughs) And like these questions today, I think the sessions are very universal. They can listen to my TED Talk or watch my TED Talk, and uh, they can follow me at lauriegottlieb.com or on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And we'll have links in the show notes to all of that. I, I love that you've taken, maybe you should talk to someone and um, created a workbook from it. And I love your podcast. You and Guy Winch do such a beautiful job of playing off of each other and um, bringing really interesting guests. As you said, right, these two questions are specific to these two women and they allowed us to explore themes that are just so important and so transcendent. And that's so much of what you and Guy bring to the Dear Therapist show. Oh, well, yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that that's what we do as therapists. I think you and I are both trying to bring all of this knowledge out into the world so that it's accessible for everybody. And and you see, I think you've seen too with your podcast, how universal all of this is when we do bring it out. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really glad that people are engaging in these conversations and, and want to learn and grow and live their lives more fully. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This was fun and I appreciate so much you bringing your wisdom and sharing your time with us. Oh, well, thank you so much. It was so great to talk with you again. Thank you, Lori, for lending your expertise and your heart here on Reimagining Love. You can find all the ways to connect with Lori in the show notes. Her column in The Atlantic is so wonderful, as well as her book. So do not hesitate to check out those resources as soon as you get the chance. Until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.